Most articles that appear in academic journals are kind of mundane in that they're extending the work of scholars who have come before or sometimes taking an old theory in a new direction. There are those moments, however, when a piece of research holds the possibility of fundamentally remaking a field. How should those articles be handled? What's the ethical way to review such research? That's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, chair of Miami Statistics Department. Our guest today is Andrew Gelman, a professor of statistics and political science and director of the Applied Statistics Center at Columbia University. His research interests include voting, criminal justice issues, social network structure, and statistical and research methods. Gelman's received the Outstanding Statistical Application Award three times from the American Statistical Association, the award for best article published in the American Political Science Review, and the Council of Presidents of Statistical Societies Award for outstanding contributions by a person under the age of 40. He's also recently authored a piece in Chance about the ethics of publishing big, if true, articles. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us again here on Stats and Stories. Happy to be here again. Could you just describe what a big, if true, article is? I'll give three examples. One was the paper published in the medical journal Lancet in 1998, uh, claiming that vaccines caused uh, health risks. Um, and that was later retracted. And that, that was considered uh, one of the most embarrassing papers ever published. In 2011, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology published a paper claiming that Cornell students had extrasensory perception. That made its way to the New York Times. In 1994, our very own statistical science journal published a claim purporting to report on a Bible code, a code from the Bible that was supposedly predicting events thousands of years later. Now, I'm not sure the story of the vaccine denial paper, but the ESP paper and the Bible code paper were notable first because, yes, big if true, if Really, you can measure extrasensory perception. That would be big news. Seems to violate our understanding of science. Worthy of a New York Times headline at the very least. Similarly, if the Bible was really predicting stuff reliably thousands of years later, that's indeed news. The second was that it seemed pretty clear that the editors of the journal did not believe these papers. Mm. Um, That they... It seemed to me that they were publishing them under a kind of sense of fairness or obligation. Like, if we don't, we, if we don't publish this paper just because we don't believe it, then we're inserting ourselves into the process. So it was, I think they were published for kind of procedural reasons. Of course, the editors of the journals, I don't think, noticed problems with the papers. Now, in both of these, again, I I will focus on the ESP paper and a little bit I'll mention the Bible Code paper. The ESP paper and the Bible Code paper have since both been refuted, uh, both empirically and methodologically. They've been empirically refuted in that people have tried to replicate the ESP studies and and don't find anything. Uh, It was 
the, the paper was methodologically refuted because people went back to the paper and they realized that the author was using a lot of forking paths. If you read the paper, the, the ESP paper looks impressive because they have, I believe, nine different experiments, all of which re report successful results. But if you look carefully, the different experiments use different methods, analyze the data in different ways. So we understand methodologically that how it was possible for researchers such as that to get apparently statistically significant results. Because it kind of looks like the probability of that happening should be 1 20th to the ninth power, but that's mm -hmm. not the case at all. So empirically refuted and also refuted at a methodological level, um, I guess you could say there is a theoretical refutation only in that there was never any mechanism, serious mechanism proposed for this to work. The Bible code paper was empirically refuted, not by trying to use the Bible to make more predictions, but some skeptics went and used the same method to other books. You can, I think they used War and Peace and like other long books, <laughs> and you can find similar patterns. And again, the the methodological refutation was that there were forking paths and there are enough things you could look at, you could find a pattern as we, at the time, we referred to it as a very easy word search problem where you can <laughs> kind of make up your own rules for, for what counts. Right now, if you look at these two papers, it's obvious how bad they are. One thing that's striking is just when the ESP paper came out, there was this whole thing like, well, we can't just reject it. It's using standard methods. That wouldn't be right. Um, but you look at it carefully, it's like, yeah, these were really bad methods. And it's a little like, you know, the story of Arthur Conan Doyle, how he was fooled by the fairy photographs. So, yeah. Right. So, so the author of the Sherlock Holmes stories um, was fooled by obviously faked photos that some kids made showing life-sized fairies flying around in their garden. And, and it's like, these are not good fakes, um, but they're just obviously fake photos. And um, Sherlock Holmes was very skeptical, but his author, not so much. But what's interesting, <laughs> what's striking is not just, oh, he got fooled, but it wasn't close. This wasn't like yeah. a fuzzy recording that might sound like something, you know, we're not talking about like the Zapruder tape or anything like that, right? Very clearly in retrospect, bad, but at the time, people didn't realize. So what I wanted to get to was, um, what if you're a journal editor in this position? And if you see the paper is really bad, you reject it. That's easy. Mm -hmm. um, what if you if you don't realize it? And that will happen because if you see the paper is really bad, you'll reject it. And you say, this is really bad. You did all these things wrong. Do you think the author is then going to say, oh, shoot, I did all these things wrong. I was wrong. I, I'm, I'm, I really feel. No, of course not. The author is going to be very annoyed at your review report and the author will send it to another journal. And then they'll yeah. keep sending it to another journal until a journal will publish it. So all you have to do is find one person. So what is that journal editor supposed to do? What, what's the right answer? And the, there's two answers that won't work. So one answer is just, oh, don't publish it, okay? Because it's ridiculous. ESP, Cornell students, like, come on. What? That's a, that's a joke, right? Like, um, but... That's not good, because if you follow that rule, then you lose your chance of big discoveries, right? 
of FOMO, right? The yeah. other, the other um, extreme would be to say, just publish it. Be open-minded. Science progresses by refutation. You know, what's the big deal? So what if they publish these, these papers? Um, but there, the problem with that, there's nothing wrong with publishing everything, but they don't publish everything. So right. there's an asymmetry that will they publish a paper saying, I did an experiment and I found that Cornell students have no ESP? Well, they're not going to publish that, right? Because we already knew that. Are they going to publish experiments saying, you, no, you, you cannot predict recent elections from the Bible? No, they're, they're not going <laughs> to do that, right? And so, so you get a bias in favor of false things. So that seems like a problem, too. So this, I, that was what the, the quandary I came at when starting to write this paper. So, you know, when I when I was reading this, I mean, it's it's funny because I, I wrote down journal FOMO is one of my first <laughs> comments is because it's it seems like there's this in, kind of real incentive to try to get this attention that will get you the, you know, the coverage in the times. I mean, so it's it's kind of this incentive process. And I, I like how you 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 kind of explored this with the, the the idea of these these motivations, the journal motivations, like as you had noted it as sort of fairness and open mindedness and and not sensitive this but but this this idea of well you want to make sure that you you know you get out there and get this claim just in case it's there because it's going to bring your journal a lot of attention i'll also say i agree but i don't want to frame it as like the journal editor being kind of greedy for fame or whatever <laughs> it's more that it's a combination of factors that reinforce each other and but part of it is a kind of bending over backward like mm -hmm. oh this is so ridiculous like like I really shouldn't be unfair to it, and and oh. and and that's where like there's a kind of again you get these kind of asymmetries because there are all sorts of ridiculous things that they don't publish. Like it's what who decides what what's the ridiculous thing. So let me let me follow up with it. So you also commented and, and stepped through kind of the refutation based on kind of this empirical exploration as well as as kind of methodological you know kind of uh, you know kind of deep kind of careful look and review is that is you know at one level that, that could be a sign of science working but but in some sense i don't i never think that that kind of the refutation ever gets the attention mm -hmm. that the splash that the the uh, incorrect splash does i yeah the re well the refutation gets less attention these kind of studies it hardly matters because not many people were believing in ESP and Bible code, or if they were, they weren't really doing anything with it except believing it. And a lot of people passively believe in, in biblical fundamentalism and extra-century perception. And I, I looked it up. Surveys say 45% of Americans say they believe in ghosts, 65% believe in the supernatural, and 65% believe in God. And so, like, you know, you can... Like people believe in things that that there's disputed evidence for um, and people believe in things that that aren't explained by the usual laws of, of physics. But it's the refutation doesn't matter because like it's someone's going to not stop believing in ghosts just because you shot down some particular ghost. Right. Yeah. But vaccine. Yeah. Casting suspicion on that. That's a pretty scary one to to have kind of pushed out and then no i agree and you get big of true they're like huge of true theories right so there are other, yeah. like it would be huge if esp was really happening right but there are theories that were proposed and refuted scientifically so there are 
are some famous examples in psychology, like certain mm -hmm. aspects of social priming. So there were studies that were promoted claiming that certain very small imperceptible interventions could have large effects on behavior. And those have been, many of them have been refuted, but the ideas are still out there. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, I agree. I mean, it's not, but like that's unavoidable too. I don't know. I mean, that's a separate question. Let me put it that way. Like how is, would there be a way for refuted things to go back to the swamp where they came from rather than just kind of living forever? Um, that's, that's a good question. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Columbia University's Andrew Gilman about the ethics of publishing research, particularly big if true research articles. You talk a lot in your column about the role of editors, but I wonder, too, about the process of peer review. You know, I do a fair amount of, of reviewing um, in communication journals, and there's always this sort of tension where, as the reviewer, you're trying to comment on sort of the, the research but also couching things like, right, like if something feels a little funny, you're like, well, there could be something interesting here, you know, if the author did a bit more digging, although it might not, it might be, you know, you're always sort of trying to couch what your critique is a little bit. And I wonder sort of what we might do in relation to sort of the peer review process itself to try to help some of this, right? Obviously, you have the issue of the editor who might feel conflicted about whether to let some of this stuff through. But at some point, those of us who are doing the reviewing also have to kind of figure out how to handle things that come through that could seem on their surface like they're done correctly, but then also seem kind of questionable. I think it would be better to have open reviews. And some journals ah. do that now because we don't actually know what the reviews said here. Like, did, did they say who reviewed right. them? Were they reviewed at all? Uh, where, where did you know how did this go when when I review a paper I just remember that I'm providing information I think I'll, I used to get get I re, would be asked to review a paper and I would think oh this is like a heavy responsibility and do I think the paper should be accepted or not but then I realized that's not my job so mm -hmm. I'm providing information to the editor so I get the paper I spend you know five or 10 minutes and I write a review and then that's information that the editor can use as, mm -hmm. as they see fit. More generally, I prefer the idea of post-publication review. Yeah. So pre-publication review is inefficient because every paper gets reviewed multiple times and the, some of the worst papers get reviewed more because they get sent from journal to journal to journal. Yeah. But then the best papers or cer certain papers that are the ones who appear in top journals get the little, least scrutiny because uh. they got three reviews and they, got a, they appeared. So they got the least scrutiny, the most attention, then they're out there. A post-publication review has the delightful feature that people only do it if they feel like it. And so the papers that there's more interest in will get more reviews. So it seems to naturally solve that problem. I, I liked your uh, idea that the, this sort of this option C, you had talked about a couple of different ideas that, that were part of what, what an editor might do. But the idea of publishing the data, you know, the raw data, as you know, without publishing, you know, kind of the, the article necessarily seemed like a really, uh, you know, a really pretty fascinating idea. Although then I found myself thinking about how, how are people going to get credit for their contributions? How are they going to, how is this going to be evaluated in the system? But it does seem particularly for things that are very challenging, you know, kind of these big, but potentially big, but true stories that that makes, makes for a, a pretty reasonable, uh, you know, maybe option. Can you talk a little bit why you thought that? So 
I would think that like if these papers have value, well, sure, like the, the authors would get credit for like sticking their neck out and, and making bold claims like, you know, you go right. Go for it. But the, the scientific value would be in their data and their analysis. They should supply their data. And so there's kind of three parts of it. First, the data should be public, the raw data. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes there's some kind of confidentiality. You're, you're doing a study of dangerous practices, but, but that's not the case in, in any of these. So first thing is to make the data available, which isn't necessarily the case. The second, though, is to take the burden away from the author, because now what's needed is a kind of coherent argument. So what I wrote here was the usual way to go is to publish a highly polished article making strong conclusions along with statistical arguments all pointing in the direction of these conclusions. Basically an expanded version of that five paragraph essay that you learned about in high school. Here's what we're gonna tell you, here it is, here's the evidence supporting it. Uh, by the way, at the end, this is what we just told you. And that's what, and students are told and researchers like that's how you're supposed to write a scientific paper. You get a lot of a lot of advice like that. You don't get a lot of advice on how do you write a scientific paper if what you think what you found is probably wrong. Right. They don't tell you much about that. Uh, people do put limitation sections in their papers and, and that's yeah. good. So I, it's, I don't mean that they're terrible, but the limitation section is is not always the, the main point. So if you can get credit for publishing the data, then you don't have to act so certain about the conclusions. Now, of course, the journal, a top journal might say, well, we don't need, we're not going to publish the data because it's, we're not publish this paper because it's a pile of data and, and it's not clear if there's really any ESP. Well, then if they really feel that way, they shouldn't publish it, right? These people yeah. can publish it somewhere else, right? Um, like if the top journal feels they need to be convinced, you know, that, that, that's another story. And they request a replication. It's if you want to run in the Boston Marathon, you first have to get a good enough time in another marathon first. So if you want to publish in the top journal, they maybe what happens is they have an unpre-registered paper somewhere else. And then the top journal says, well, this is sort of suspicious. So we're going to ask you for you to do that. Like that could be done. There's a lot of options. Um, but once you recognize the roles that the journals have. You've been writing this column about sort of the ethics in statistical research uh, for a while now. Can you talk a bit about how that got started and why you felt compelled to sort of start writing about that? It started in 2000, I think it was 2012, and the editor at the time asked if I wanted to do a column. And I wanted to do a column about ethics and statistics because I was bothered about how people talk about ethics and statistics and how people talk about ethics more generally. And I would say my problem about how people talked about ethics and statistics back then is similar to my problem about how people talk about ethics in data science now. It's a similar thing. And I felt like there were three things going on. So the first was that ethics are important. I mean, it's clear that unethical behavior exists, that we personally sometimes have ethical trade-offs it's, it's an important topic. The second is that it, it, that we are not trained as ethicists. I, I really am skeptical that it means anything to be trained as an ethicist for that matter. I don't, I don't really think that there's, I mean, some people know more about the topic than others, but I don't think it's a technical subject in the same way as being trained to be a veterinarian or to be a physicist or 
or to be a truck driver or, or, or whatever. I don't, I don't think of it quite that way. But, but we certainly are not used to thinking systematically about ethics, but we know it's important. The third is a tendency to focus on a few kind of specific flagship problems, sort of flattening the discussion. So I was coming into this. Let, let me talk about how I came into ethics and statistics. So I felt that the discussion of ethics and statistics focused, I felt like they'd say, there are these things like, is it ethical to do a randomized trial if the treatment, if you know the treatment's going to be better? And people say things like you need equipoise between the treatment and the control. If you think the control is better, it's, it's unethical to do the treatment. Or if you think the treatment is better, it's unethical to do the control. But that makes no sense. I mean, from a Bayesian standpoint, to say equipoise makes no sense. Because if you have equipoise and you get one data point, you no longer have equipoise. But, but also just from a like, real-life standpoint, that's not the case. Like You, you obviously were in different situations, different settings. There's real ethical questions like when do you stop the trial? But I felt that the framing was was kind of naive. And then when people would try to rescue it by saying, well, this is an ethical design. If the probability is in this range and it's not statistically significant, I just felt like they're they're kind of missing some of the big parts of the story. And in this case, a big issue is a trolley problem, that it's a trade off of the people in the study with the general population. And so ethical questions have to ultimately result revolve around how many people are in the population, who, what's happening to the people in the study specifically. I don't mean that there's a formula, that there's an easy answer, but to answer it without talking about the population and about talking about other people in the sample, it seems um, wrong to me. Now, the second thing that bothered me was what, what I, I call the L.A. law st- version of <laughs> ethics, which is an old TV show. And in the old TV show, there'd be good guys and bad guys, and often the lawyers would have to kind of defend the bad guy, and there'd be this kind of, like, you get these very subtle ethical questions, right? Like, you know, what if I, I'm, a, I'm a company and I'm polluting, I'm sending sludge into the river, is that unethical? Well, it's legal. So would it be unethical? If it's legal, is it really unethical? If I don't do it, my company will go out of business, I'm going to be defeated by competitors from other countries that have lax environmental laws and ever I have to fire everybody. So really it would be unethical of me not to dump the sludge, right? Or what if it is illegal? Well, you pay a fine. It would be unethical of me to not dump the sludge and pay the fine. What if I could bribe some politicians and, and get them to look the other way? Well, maybe that's the most ethical way because the alternative, so you get, you get into this kind of extreme consequentialism in which you can make any clever argument. And I associated that with a lot of ethics talk. So I associate ethics talk with either very specific arguments that are are missing huge parts of the problem or a kind of clever, clever story where you can make an argument for anything, a, a kind of like, you know, debate team approach to ethics. So I had this idea. I thought I, I want to do something different. So I talked with my my wife, Carolyn, who she teaches social work and she taught classes in ethics. And I gave her my complaints and she said, that's not what ethics is about. Like she, she said, ethics is not like when I said it's about people justifying all these things. She said, no, ethics is about people making decisions under difficult situations and balancing this out. Now, in social work, this is very clear because social work is all about the person in, in her environment. And that's that's how it's distinct from various academic fields. 
So I started with my first ethics column. I thought, what is an ethical dilemma? I wanted to be very clear. An ethics problem arises when you're considering an action that first benefits you or some cause you support, second hurts or reduces benefits to others, and third violates some rule. So it seemed to me that's what it's about. There's a trade-off and a rule. Of course, you can have trade-offs without the rule, but, but typically there is some, something that you're supposed to do. And I felt that ethical discussions of ethics in statistics tended to be bloodless, and discussions mm -hmm. of ethics in journalism tended to be too clever and to, to focus on the idea that you can come up with an argument for everything. So I thought when we're thinking we should, I wanted to write a column with specific ethical dilemmas um, that involve these trade-offs and try to like think about them from scratch. So that was my goal. Do you feel like your thoughts about ethics have changed at all since you started writing the column? Well, my, what I've spent my time writing about has kind of changed in some way. I guess I've, when I started, it was when I was becoming more aware of like a lot of bad research that's been published, but it was less of a, a concern. I mean, example I gave in the first column was something that had happened decades earlier when I was in grad school, where I had read a paper that it's not that it had a million citations, but in a certain subfield, it was being much discussed. And I went to the library, found the article, typed in the data. It wasn't raw data, but it was various estimates and standard errors, made some graphs, and, and I realized that they could have done better in their analysis. And I contacted them and asked if they could share the data, and they said no. Like, well, everything was in lab notebooks then. They would have had to photocopy it wouldn't have been that hard, but they, they didn't. They just weren't. So I was really thinking in terms of like that paper is not scientific fraud or anything close. It, it was just I, I don't think they 100 percent knew what they were doing. But for I think at the time I was thinking of science reform mostly in that way, like we should be able to do better if we have more data available. Um, I think I was just less aware of thinking about there being a systematic problem of bad science. So that's kind of a whole angle of ethics that, that has come up a lot, which wasn't originally what I was thinking about. Some of the things we've written about have just been flat out people lying, making up data. Um, I, don't, I don't want to talk about that like all the time, because if you talk too much about fraud, then, or maybe sometimes it's not fraud, but I don't know, malfeasance or something, when you talk about just misconduct all the time, then people who don't do flat out misconduct think that they must be doing everything right. And, yeah. and then conversely, if you point out someone does something wrong, they think you're accusing them of misconduct, which is frustrating. But yeah, some of it's just that, um, just like bad numbers out there. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, sure. Thank you for inviting me. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcasts or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.